Well, I'm always a little sad when we come to an end of a series like we will with First Peter this morning. It's like saying goodbye to an old friend after you've spent some really meaningful time together, kind of gotten to know each other's heart a little bit, and even though you're saying goodbye, you kind of look forward to revisiting each other again soon. <laughs> That's precisely how I feel about our time in First uh, Peter together. I think he's been very kind to encourage us, even in the midst of our suffering, knowing that there's nothing easy, and he's honest about this. He, he calls them the, the various trials and the fiery ordeals that we face. He, he knows it's difficult, but he reminds us that God is faithful even in the midst of some of our most difficult circumstances, that he has the power to take what the enemy intends for evil and use it for our good. Because as hard as our suffering may be, Peter reminds us that it's an important part of our witness in the world. He tells us to always be ready to give a defense of the hope that you have in Christ, that, that living hope with others around you. But in order for that to happen, he tells us that, that we need to, to, to be drawn towards, cling to, be nourished by the pure milk of God's word, to, to let it speak to our hearts, to remind us of God's promises. But he goes on and says there, there's actually more because we're not designed to, to do that alone. This is not just something we do individually in our pursuit of knowing and following Christ, that we're actually in this together. And so he tells us to, to love one another fervently from the heart. He tells us to be hospitable to one another without complaint. He tells us to serve one another as, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, a grace, as we just talked about, that will be fully revealed when Christ returns. The beginning of chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you at the return of Jesus Christ. And really, I think in that one statement, you see kind of the, the lifeblood that, that courses throughout Peter's letter. This is the future joy that allows us to endure our present trials. It's the joy set before us, as it was for Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. And so with that in mind, I want you to begin our time by asking yourself this question. The question is this. Do I hope fully in the grace to be revealed? In your everyday life, in, in your moment-by-moment -moment circumstances, do I hope fully in the grace to be revealed? Or, if you're honest, is it just something that you hope for or that you believe will, will hopefully happen someday, that, that maybe it'll be the case, that, that there's just this sense of, 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 of doubt there a little bit. Is it hopefully or hopefully? See, there's a world of difference in just those two perspectives. And so let's ask the Lord to, to speak through our time this morning, by the work of his spirit, by the truth of his word, to, to move us from this distant possibility of 
hopefully, to a living hope that is fully present in our everyday lives. Amen? Let's go to the Lord together. Father, as we come to you this morning, that really is our shared prayer, our collective plea that you would allow what your word says to us this morning to move us from a distant possibility of something that's hopefully true to a heartfelt conviction that hopes fully in what we know to be true because it's straight from you spoken by you, affirmed by you, accomplished by you, fulfilled by you. And Father, strengthen our hearts this morning because of the power of your truth, because of the work of your spirit, because of the praise of your people who have joined together this morning. And pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Like we talked about last week, there's that trans word, transition word again, therefore, at the beginning of verse six as Peter transitions from what he just said to what he will now say. What he just said is, since God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble, that's what he just said, then, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Entrust yourselves to a faithful creator, just like Peter said back in chapter four, knowing with full conviction that God has an infinite supply of everything you could possibly need. He's not wringing his hands, wondering what he's gonna do because you did something he didn't expect or didn't see coming. Instead, he causes all things all things, to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt you at the proper time. Personally, I see this as a promise. A promise that no matter what you're going through, it will not last forever. God will exalt you. As the psalmist says, he will lift you out of the miry clay and make your footsteps firm. It's what God promises through the prophet Jeremiah when he says, I have plans for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a future filled with hope. So cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Which, for me, this is one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture, which I'm sure it is for many of you as well. But one of the reasons for me is it acknowledges the reality that we have anxiety, right? It understands that, that there are troubles that we face, that there are difficulties that we encounter. It understands that worry is a normal part of the human condition and not the unforgivable sin. But Peter goes on to say, you have anxieties. That's, that's part of your humanity, but don't hold on to them. He says, cast your anxiety on him, the one who cares for you. Hand over your worries. Let go of your stress. Give it to God. And when you're giving it to him, you're actually letting him take responsibility for something you were never able to control yourself anyway. 
And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble and of heart, and, and you will find rest for your souls. Basically, Jesus is saying, let's trade burdens, okay? You give me your burdens, I'll give you my rest. Now, that's a deal, all right? If you hadn't taken him up on that, I strongly encourage you to do that. You give him your burdens, and he gives you his rest. Cast all your anxieties on me, Jesus says, because I care for you. Which sounds really good, and it is, right? But, but the question, if you're like me, is I'm reading through, processing, working through this in my own life. I'm like, okay, but how do you do that? What does that look like? I, I think Paul answers that question. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, when he says this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because remember, we've said this over and over again. Prayer is a posture of dependence. It's a humble heart that looks to a gracious God for daily help. Look, this is not a magic formula. It's not some mystical mantra. It's simply inviting God into the presence of of your everyday life. Because anxiety, at its core, is imagining your present or your future circumstances without God in it at all. Thus the result of anxiety. But, but prayer, when we go before the Lord with those things that burden and trouble our hearts, what we are doing is we are inviting God into those moments with us. And his peace is, in fact, the fruit of his presence. He speaks truth that will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Because you'll notice, as you look at that passage in Philippians, you've read it a hundred times before, I'm sure, it never said anything about God answering your prayers. So the peace doesn't come from having all the answers. The peace comes from giving it to the one, the only one, who does? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now look at how he continues in verse 8. <clears throat> Sorry. I just swallowed my own spit. <clears throat> verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, who might have just caused that, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So Peter began by talking about this attitude that we should have when he tells us to, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And now he tells us to, to be alert knowing that we have an adversary who is also at work in this world. The ESV translation says, be sober-minded and be watchful. I like that. It's really two related ideas but are distinctly different from one another. 
The word sober-minded literally means self-controlled. It's the idea of being prepared. So, so Peter's saying, be prepared and be watchful. In other words, be equipped for battle, but be ready to be engaged. Because really, we know in terms of spiritual warfare, it's not a matter of if the enemy is going to attack. It's only a matter of when he's going to attack. And so, like Peter says back in chapter 1, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Be prepared, be ready. Because your adversary, he goes on to say, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And to me, when I read this, it seems like such an odd description. Because it doesn't fit with what we normally see in nature, does it? You've seen the documentaries, right? When the lion is prowling and seeking to devour prey, what does he do? He's completely still. And then silently moves in the grass. Making sure that there's no indication that his presence is even known so that he can wait until the last minute and then he'll pounce. But that's not what Peter says, is it? What does he say? He says that the devil is like a a roaring lion. So he's not hiding in the shadows at all, is he? He's hunting his prey, but, but instead he's blatantly and boldly making his presence known. Peter, interestingly, identifies him as the devil, which literally means the accuser. So what this tells me is that the devil is prowling around, roaring with lies, hoping to destroy you with his deception. Wanting you to believe things about yourself or about God or about others or your situation that are simply not true. Things like, There's no hope for your marriage. This thing's too far gone. That's not true. Because when two people truly trust in the Lord and they turn to him, it is never too far gone. He tells you lies about your identity and who you were born to be. He tries to convince you it's okay if you sleep with someone, if you truly, sincerely love them. I mean, that's a lie that he roars throughout this world and everybody's believing it but it's not true because you can't experience the fullness of what God intends outside the boundaries of God's design. He lures you into finding your value and worth in the opinions of other people. He says no one really cares about you. You're you're actually better off on your own and and forget about church. It's just filled with hypocrites. Hypocrites. These are lies. The devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking to destroy you with his deception, making you believe things that are simply not true. So don't listen to his lies. Because really, the only way that he can reap his destruction is if you believe his boastful claims. That's why Peter says, be prepared, be expectant, be armed with God's truth, and if you are, then you will not be a victim 
to Satan's lies. Peter says, resist the devil standing firm in your faith. The Bible tells us to abhor what is evil, to to cling to what is good. James 4, 7 says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's a promise. And here's why. The deception of of the devil has no power when confronted with God's truth, okay? Did you hear that? The deception of the devil has no power when confronted with God's truth. We can have confidence that that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And when you look to the Lord in faith, he has the power to redeem what is broken, to restore what is lost, to affirm what is true. Because when you are armed with God's truth, you will not be a victim to Satan's lies. So be prepared. Armed with truth, relying on the Spirit, protected within the community of God's people. Because as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6.1, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. With that, pause. See, this is the enemy. He's not going to win. Peter never promises that it's going to be easy. In fact, he even admits to the fact that the thing to people who are suffering because of their commitment to stand firm on biblical truth. He says at the end of verse 9, knowing that the same experiences of a suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And if you're like me, you read that and go, well, how exactly is that helpful? How am I supposed to feel better in my suffering knowing that other people are suffering too? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever listened to a testimony of someone else's faith? And when you hear that testimony, you actually hear part of your story. And isn't it encouraging, one, to know that you're not alone, that that others have been encountering the same things that you have? And isn't it hopeful to see how God sustained them in the midst of it when you're trying to get through it yourself? I think that's what Peter's trying to communicate here. Be encouraged because what he wants us to know is that, look, we're all in this together. That that no one was intended to try to endure the difficulties of life on their own. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together. Okay, don't miss that. Striving together for faith in the gospel. Look at how he continues in verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be all dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we have an adversary. That's a reality. But now he says, but you also have an advocate. And he calls him the God of all grace, which I think is a great 
statement of truth. The very one who saved you is the one who is at work in you, and he will accomplish what he started because your suffering will not last forever. Peter says, after you have suffered for a little while. And Paul, in another verse, says, he calls it our light and momentary affliction, which at first glance, is not really helpful because if you've ever been through suffering, there's nothing that feels light and momentary about it, is there? And it doesn't feel like when we're in the midst of suffering that it's going to last for just a little while because it often feels like it's going to go on forever, right? But but Peter acknowledged the, the reality but says, that's what it feels like? But here's the truth. It's not going to last. It's only for a little while. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And I don't know that I completely understand what's being communicated here, but apparently the delight in God's infinite grace will remove any remembrance of suffering and pain in life. To the point, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, it says, There will no longer in God's presence be any mourning, any crying, or any pain. So, producing for us a heavenly blessing beyond all comparison. So much so that we lose sight of how difficult things once were. But... I also want to remind us that this is not just some future hope to hang on until you get there kind of a thing. That that God is actually at work in our world, in our lives, even now, day to day. Peter says that, that God is working because of the finished work of the cross. God has begun his redemptive work in you. He says he will perfect, he will confirm, he will strengthen, and he will establish you. The word perfect is the same idea as to restore, to to take something that's broken and bring it back to life. It reminds me of uh, somebody who restores furniture. Take something that's old and forgotten, if you've ever seen them, bring it back to life. It's some of the most beautiful artwork that you'll ever experience whenever you see something that was stuffed in a garage, it's faded, it's, it's got chips and cracks, and then they restore it and you're like, I had no idea, this is more beautiful than I could have ever remembered it being. And that's the restoration kind of work that God does in our life because we were broken by the power of sin's control. But through faith in Christ, we have been made alive. We have been restored together with Christ. Old things have gone. Remember, behold, new things have come. On Tuesday at Regent, Brian reminded us of a great quote from Mary Magdalene, if you've seen the Chosen series, you'll remember this. When somebody asks her to describe the hope that is within her, here's how she explains it. She said, I was one way, and now I'm completely different. And what happened in between was him, Jesus. He restored her, set on a path to become everything God created her to be because Philippians 1 6 makes this important promise to all of us that he who began a good work in you is faithful to, there's the word, perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will perfect. And he goes on and says, and confirm. 
Or, or to say it another way, he will restore and he will renew. Like God says in Joel chapter 2 verse 25, I will restore what the locusts have eaten. So even if it looks like there's no life, he has a way to bring back life, to bring beauty from ashes. He will expose the lies that we believed about ourselves, about him, and he will replace them with his truth, confirming what is good and right and true and honorable and just. And then the Lord says that he will strengthen us through our dependence upon him. It's like what David says in Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped because of that. Therefore, my heart exults, and with song, I shall thank him. He confirms, he, he perfects, confirms, strengthens, and then he goes on and says, and establishes. This, I think, is a stability that comes from building your life on a foundation of faith. Kind of like the parable Jesus tells about the houses built on a rock, that when the storms of life hit it, it's not easily moved. It's my favorite psalm, Psalm 62, 2. It says, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, and in Him I will not be greatly shaken. Established. The God of all grace is miraculously transforming your life helping you become everything he created you to be because he will perfect, he will confirm, he will strengthen, and he will establish you. Those are promises of God spoken from the truth of his word that I pray this morning resonate in your hearts to realize that he, the one who is before all things and in him all things hold together, that he's the one that's holding you present in your circumstances. And to him be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Which actually brings us right back to where we began. See, I think this is the key to how we hope fully in the redemptive work of God. Because this should reshape how we view our circumstances and the challenges that we face. So instead of saying, well, hopefully God cares and maybe he'll come through, we say we cast all our anxieties on him because we hope fully in the assurance that he cares for us. It's not hopefully. It's something we hope fully in. We have a confidence because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We know that he cared so much about our suffering and pain that he actually took it upon himself on the cross. He cared enough about our separation caused by sin by taking the penalty that we deserved upon himself so that we could be reconciled to God. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary, because I care. He, he cares enough to forgive our sin and to hold us 
secure. So this is what gives us the confidence. So we don't have to say, well, hopefully I've done enough to get into heaven. Have you ever heard that before? Hopefully. Hopefully. No. I can hope fully knowing that Christ has done everything necessary and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that I can look forward to the grace to be revealed when Jesus Christ returns. I hope fully. You see the difference? It reshapes how we see everything. We don't say, hopefully my marriage will get better. We hope fully in God's power to redeem, no matter how bad things get. Because again, when two people turn their hearts to the Lord and sincerely humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, there is no miracle that he cannot perform in your life today. Instead of saying, hopefully I'll no longer be enslaved by these hurts and habits and hang-ups that have plagued me my entire life. Hopefully someday it'll look different. No, we don't do that. We, we hope fully that we can, in fact, find freedom in the midst of our struggle. Because if we have been included in Christ's sin-conquering death, then we have, in fact, been raised to walk in the newness of life. And we hope fully in that promise and believe in that truth. Sin is no longer our master because we are now ruled by the God of all grace. Amen? You get the idea? Because if all dominion truly belongs to him, is there anything that he can't do? Is there any purpose in your life that he cannot fulfill? Isn't that why Peter was able to close the letter like he does in verse 16 there at the end when he says, peace be to all of you who are in Christ Jesus? The implication being, if God is for you, then who can be against you? See, we hope fully as we read in Romans 8, 37, that in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For we collectively, we're convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we hope fully in that? Absolutely. Let's pray together. Father, we do want to grow in the certainty and the conviction of all that you've accomplished so that we can, in fact, hope fully, that we can put our trust in you, knowing that, yes, we have an adversary, and he seeks to destroy with his deception, but we are protected by your truth that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus that we are protected within the family that you have brought us into so that, that we are comforted and strengthened by one another. Father, thank you for the truth of 1 Peter and how you've consistently, week after week, day after day, spoken into our lives to encourage us in our own struggles and difficulties. Jesus, we love you. And we cast all our anxieties upon you. Because we hope fully knowing 
that you care for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Don't you love it when a song sums it better than anything you could have said before it, right? It's <clears throat> so good. Hey, just a couple of quick things um, that are important. Grant and I are about to jet out of here to drive to Dallas so that we can fly to Israel tomorrow with 40 of our closest friends from this church, which we are really excited about. But And then, as you know, I will begin a time of sabbatical this summer. And let me encourage you in a few things. You are in for a treat. Because you're going to have the opportunity next, beginning next Sunday to hear from my mentor, my friend, and your pastor for almost two decades. What a treat for you to hear from Roger Wisdom as he faithfully brings God's word to you as he did so faithfully for many years. And if you're new to Melanie Park and haven't heard him, then be ready because it's going to be good. And, and not only that, you're going to have the chance to hear from a couple of young guys that went through a preaching cohort last year where we talked about what it meant to faithfully handle God's word. And I am thrilled for you that you're going to get to hear them take what they've learned because they have truly taken it to heart. And they truly want to handle God's word well. And they're going to share that with you. And you're in for a treat. And not only that, just the pastoral calf. We were, had a staff meeting this week and they said, are you nervous about things while you're gone? Absolutely not. I have no concerns about the oversight and shepherding of the elders and the pastoral staff. The only concern I have is me (laughs) and making the most of my time. And that's where I would appreciate your prayers for sure. So let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this sweet church family, for the privilege to be their pastor. Father, thank you for the powerful truth of your word that says exactly what we need to hear in the moments that we need it most. Thank you for your spirit that is alive and well and at work within us to help us see the places that we need to trust in you more, that we can cast all our anxieties on you, not some of them, not the hardest ones, but all of them because you care for us. And they're so much better off in your hands than they are in our own. So, Lord, help us to just find peace as we look to you and trust in you, the God of all grace. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great day.